the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. Please, 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 as always, show us some love on our social media channels at We Get Real AF and make sure you subscribe to the show and leave us some love there as well with a comment. As COVID vaccines have become readily available to most adult populations, employers and employees alike are considering their options with regard to returning to work and what that looks like in this new and very different professional world. What should employers have in place and how do they reduce the risk of liability? Will employees be required to return to the status quo in-office work environment if they've found they can accomplish the same tasks and objectives remotely? Do they have lawback negotiating power? We're going to be covering all of these things and more with Director of Nextra Solutions at Nexum Pruitt, Angela O'Neill. Angela assists clients with mitigating risks associated with managing large volumes of data and will be sharing her legal insights on the nuances the last 13 months has left us navigating. Angela, we're so happy to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa and Sue. How can our listeners find and connect with you online? Uh, they can reach me through uh, Nextra Solutions. Uh, that's on Twitter. And uh, my personal Twitter handle is HootDreams08. And um, they can all, also check us out at www.nextrasolutions.com. Fantastic. All right. COVID-19, RTW, returning to work. Some people are cringing. Other people mm-hmm. are really excited. <laughs> What are the considerations and liabilities? Let's talk about this from an employer's perspective first. I think from the employer's perspective, when you come back to work, you always have to have protections in place and policies in place for what if someone develops COVID. Um, We're 14, 15 months into this now. And I think as more people get vaccinated, we get slack, I'll use the word, and how we interact. Six months ago, everyone would have their mask. And now I think employers are finding people are, oh, I forgot my mask at home. It's okay. I'm vaccinated. And I think that the the best employers still employ the same practices that they employed on day one. And that this is the protocol for COVID. This is the protocol for being in the office. If you want a, a glass space up, we will put a glass space up. We will make an accommodation for you. If you're going to bring them back in the office, I think that what employers must keep their mind on is that although we are getting uh, closer to the end of this, hopefully, um, it, the COVID is still very active in our communities and we still must take precautions um, to guard other employees against the virus. So one of those requirements that I've seen floating around on various social media platforms and being discussed is the vaccine. And we may not have a legal surefire answer for this yet, but in your opinion, what does that argument look like as far as employers requiring people to be vaccinated before they can either come back into the office or be eligible to apply for a position with that company? 
I think the, the answer is twofold. I think depending on the line of work that the individual works in, I think that they will get some more leniency, if you may. I think that, for example, if you work in the hospital on the front line, you know, any of those, um, you know, police law enforcement, um, I think they have more power to tell you you need to get the vaccine because of the individuals that you would interact with. And I say that by choice, the individuals that you get to interact with, because if you're in a hospital, you don't get to choose who you treat. You have to you have to treat everyone. If you're law enforcement, you don't get to choose which case to respond to. You get there and you go to work. You know, the same thing with a paramedic. And I, I would, and this is my, this is just my personal best legal opinion after reading, you know, a lot of articles, I would kind of follow the vaccine rollout plan with regard to who can require their employees to get the vaccine. Starting out, well, who were the most essential workers? If you think back to early December, it was, depending on the state, but early December, it was, you know, healthcare workers first and then law enforcement and then people in nursing homes. I think people that have direct contact with individuals they may have a better argument for requiring their employees or any new employees to have the vaccine before working. Um, there may be some accommodations that exist, but you know most states have at will. You know the other thing you play in here is that most states are at will states. You know, short of you having a union, I don't think you, the, the employer can have whatever rules and regulations they want regarding employees. And if you don't want to follow those, you don't have to be an employee at that place of employment. You know, and I would think that. This goes into liability on the part of the employer, too, because if the employer doesn't require everybody in the office to have a vaccine before they come in, and then somebody gets sick, which I guess theoretically, if you've had the vaccine, you shouldn't be able to get sick, but maybe somebody else comes into the office. It just seems like that it's creating this uncertain workspace where the employer could be at risk for getting sued if somebody gets COVID. Is that true? I think that yes and no, but there has to be protocols for the vaccine. I think that that's where you do really have to have some legitimate protocols. Like if you haven't been vaccinated, then you may not be able to come to work without your mask. If everyone's been vaccinated and you don't need a mask, but the individual that's not vaccinated, they may still need to be a mask. And, you know, then I, as I sit here and say that, there may be some kind of discrimination thing going on. But that's exactly what I was thinking, because, you know, that's what's going to happen. Uh, then they're going to say, I'm discriminated against because I didn't get the vaccine. No, you just have to wear a mask. I think it would be a hard point to prove if it was enforced across the board. Like if here's the rule, if if you don't get the vaccine, we're not asking you to, but you're going to have to wear a mask all the time at work. So how does that not violate HIPAA? Well, it kind of does, right? I mean, like, well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, so it, it's really interesting because, you know, when we're talking about protocols, and that was going to be my next question, is like how to do it well as an employer, what you the, the do's and don'ts, and how to best protect not only your employees, but also yourself from liability and, and risk. And I just, what you described is very much like, okay, well, if that person's wearing a mask when all of us other people are not, and we know we've been vaccinated, clearly they haven't gotten it. And that's a piece of their medical record, right? right? So um, unpack that. I don't really know how you fix that other than like they're going to be shamed into getting a vaccine. <laughs> Requiring proof of the vaccine, I don't see a problem with that, right? You know, if, you, if I want to not wear my mask, then here's my vaccine card. And so that's fine. But the person beside me, you know, they may have a religious issue, which I think they'll be exempt from it. You know, some families don't believe in vaccines uh, of any type. 
So, I mean, they can't be penalized. I just think that it's going to require some some HR departments to, to, to dig deep and to talk to some good attorneys about how to craft the language so that you don't make the workplace, I guess, hostile for some individuals. I know that personally, if we're in the office and everyone's not wearing a mask and one person's wearing a mask, I mean, inevitably, it's going to be the water cooler talk. Like, why did they get the vaccine? I think to unpack it, I, I don't even think we're there yet. I think that we're we're in this no man's land where you want to get back to normal, but how do you get back to normal when everyone's not on the same path? I don't know the right answer. I mean, here's my plug. I think that everyone should get the vaccine if it's, you know, absent of religious reason. Well, and here's the thing, too. Vanessa and I were just on a call earlier today with a prospective guest who was talking about FDA regulation. And she mentioned the fact that most masks are not FDA regulated. Most of the masks that people are walking around in out there probably aren't doing much, if anything, to stop the spread of COVID-19. So then, to me, that adds another layer to the onion peel about, is there some negligence involved there? If you come back into the office, you're not vaccinated, and you're just wearing a a mask that you bought. You bring up such a great point, Stu. It's because I I double mask. I wear like a medical, and then I have a pretty, you know, Vera Bradley flowery masks that I wear. Um, But I double, and I've been double masking even before Dr. Fauci mentioned that that's something that people should potentially consider because I was just like double protection type of thing. But that's interesting. So, you know, is it that employers provide masks to their employees and say, regardless of being vaccinated, part of our uh, return to work protocol is everyone is wearing a mask. And this This is this mask (laughs) because we have made sure that it has all the layers of protection that we want everyone to have just to be covered and not to isolate anyone either. Again, pro-vaccine here because obviously I believe in science. However, I understand people have their own issues as to why they don't want it for whatever reason. I'm a nursing mother, so I have my own complexities that I'm dealing with too. I stay home most of the time, so I don't put anyone else at risk um, and I don't put myself at extra risk too. And so I'm weighing those options out for myself right now currently. However, you know, everyone has their own battles that they're navigating. And this is unprecedented in our modern day, right? Mm -hmm. So I I understand and I I get it's a very complex situation. Um, But we're here to talk about what can we do to help (laughs) (laughs) employers and employees make the best decisions, right? I think being informed is, is, is key. You have to plan and you have to prepare and then you have to prepare some more. And I think, and as much as employers can get educated about what's right and what's not, I mean, the CDC changes guidelines. They're only giving you guidelines. I think you have to do what's best for your uh, your company. And whether you work in banking or whether you work in the restaurant industry or whether you work in a law firm or, or a manufacturing plant, you know, each one of those things, each one of those places present different issues. And so... It's like, what can you learn about this to make it safe for your employees? I don't know the answer. What I do know is that we've had enough time for employers to invest the resources that are needed to make a workplace environment safe. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, when we spoke with you previously, you talked about how important it is not only to have those processes in place, but document, 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 right? And also to make it very, very clear as employers are gathering health data on employees, um, whether it's through a point system or a requirement, uh, incentivized or required, 
be very careful how you are handling that information, right? Make sure your HR departments and everybody else is very, very careful how they're protecting that information because those are potential liabilities as well. Could you talk about those items a little bit? Yeah, definitely. If you're going to ask health questions, one, you have to make sure that it's only limited to HR and that it's not being disseminated across the, the firm. And even when someone um, you know, reports a positive COVID test, it's important that you don't release their name or information. Now, some of it is just like common sense. Like Angela's here today and now she's gone for 14 days. She's out with COVID, but that's not to come from the firm you know, or, or from the employer. And then even if you're requiring them to do temperature checks you know, when, they, when they check in, it's recorded, but no one else needs to know what people's uh, temperatures are or, or what, just like any other health condition. You know, I think that um, early on during this and the contact tracing isn't as important as, as it was, you know, even six months ago, is that when people were, were, were coming to work with the, the contract, you know, contact tracing, you know, how to protect the individual and not identify them. Because I think early on, the exposure was so, so bad and, and so quick and so rapid that you had to have those kind of um, mechanisms in place. But while you did it, you also had to make sure that you were protecting the employee information. I think that those are still the two things that you must protect, someone's health information and someone's personal information, because those things will get you sued. I mean, they will, we live in a litigious society. And if, you know, no matter how friendly you are with your employer, but if you find out they release some of your health information, um, there's going to be a settlement or a lawsuit, one or the other. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of those. I want to kind of pivot here just a second. I read something that sounded a little, again, understand why, but also borderline about vaccine passports. Mm-hmm. So we would oh, yeah. literally be walking around and potentially have to show a vaccine passport clearly when you're traveling. That was, I think, the use case for it. Um, and who knows, once you open that floodgate, what other gates would want to be opened with that as well. Do you have any comments on that? I mean, I think it's interesting. I, I, I'd never known that I had to reveal my medical condition to travel. So I'm not sure why I would need it to prove that I have a vaccine. I think it just leads to malfeasance. Because as soon as people know you need a vaccine card, whether you took it or not, there's going to be some business selling them to you, right or wrong. <laughs> I was just going to say, the fake ID mm-hmm. <laughs> industry mm-hmm. just got a new vertical. I yeah. mean, it totally just went up. I do think it's a bit intrusive for the government to require me to walk around with my vaccine card. Well, and once you open that Pandora's box, let's be honest, when has it ever closed back it's, up again? It's just going to go in the wrong direction. Well, I know we both want to get into e-discovery and emerging data science there. But before we pivot, I have one more COVID question okay. uh, regarding working from home, remote work. And a lot of companies adjusted because if they didn't, they were going to go out of business and realize they could do that very quickly and put a lot of infrastructure in place in order for that to happen the last year. Um I'm one that love the flexibility, right? Um, And I, especially as a parent, do not miss the morning rush and hustle. And I've acquired a quality of life that I really appreciate now. There is the nuance, obviously, that we're still dealing with with children at home while parents work from home. But I think that we will hopefully surpass that soon and overcome that. But do employees have a law-backed, um, negotiating power now with employees. Is, are we there yet? Um, 
apart from, you know, just having the general conversation, is there something legally they can bring up to help their case? (laughs) I think that um, it's a thin line. I think that they can highly encourage you to come in. I think that if you really have a problem going out in public, I mean, actually going out because of the pandemic, then I don't think they can force you to come to work. Like, and you're still doing your job. I would call it a reasonable accommodation, but I don't think that, unfortunately for you, Vanessa, I don't think that they're going to let you say you can do it forever. I do think companies are learning that we don't need to be in the office to be valuable employees. I read an article recently where they said their work productivity went up because people were working remotely. And I can tell you that when I come in the office, I I come in early for like 30 to 45 minutes before most people get here. And I get a lot of work done in that 30 to 45 minutes. And then people get to work. Then you come in and talk and then you get interrupted. And then it's very hard for me to do any project that's going to require my, you know, finite attention um, sitting at my desk. So I'll go sneak off to like a conference room or something where no one can can find me. And so I do get the productivity method. And um, for me personally, I I probably would not be a good work from home um, individual. Um, there's too many distractions of stuff that I would normally do, but I found a way to do it. However, I did work at home for two weeks in December and it was hard for me to come back to the office because I like I would roll up and I would like log on. I would work and then I found myself being more productive in that limited capacity. I know it wouldn't be a long term thing for me, but I do believe that productivity improves when you're at home. If you have an area where you can work from without distraction. Right. I was going to say, I'm sure it varies by the type of role that you have and the type of industry that you work in and the type of company that you work for. And to some extent, even the type of coworkers you have, right? Now that we're talking about working from home, <laughs> um, for, for folks who have been and who will continue to work from home, what are the accommodations or what are the precautions they should be taking, things they should be aware of? when they're using their personal devices versus their work devices. Because if one thing has happened for all of us in this past year, it's that there's been a lot of blurring of the lines between uh, what's going on in our personal lives and what's going on in our transactional lives through work. And so um, if you would explain to us what people need to understand about their privacy when they're using a work computer and what precautions they need to be taking. From my perspective, I would tell everyone that if you're working from home, only use your work computer. I know sometimes it's 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 not ideal um, that issues arise, but it makes preservation so much easier. Um, it makes connecting back to the network so much easier. And because I think what what we lose in all this is like while we're working remote and we're feeling good, is that you know we still have a duty to preserve documents or conversations or text messages. Because you never know when a lawsuit is going to arise, right? And so companies have to reevaluate their policies regarding these things. They probably should have did it in June and July, but it's not too late because you need to update, you know, like what is our retention policy, right? What is our use policy for bring your own devices? Because those are the type of things that will be missed in a potential lawsuit, you know, and... The other thing companies need to do is when you do return to work, 
make sure they ask the employees, what kind of devices were you using when you were working remote? Were you, did you use a local computer? Did you use a computer that your husband used? Did you use your work computer? Did you use the, 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 the computer that was at the place where you were? Because they all present data security issues, you know, and then like the, at the, at the end of the day, you know, preservation is what any employer should be concerned with. And what, and then on the flip side of that, it's like, you don't want people to connect things to your server that may end up bringing on a, a, a Trojan or a something that could infiltrate the system and mess up the entire server. So I think that having the discussion with the employees before they leave to work remote, I mean, although in this instance, we kind of had to beef up pretty quick. I say that now that we've done it, people know what the, should know what the rules and regulations are regarding working remote, even if it is on a short-term basis or a long-term basis. I think what we have learned from COVID, and this is a pivot for me for one second, is that, you know, a lot of times when people say, you know, I, I, I'm having a surgery, have to be out seven days, 10 days, I can't come to the office. What employers are learning is, short of you being unconscious, you have the ability to work. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 you, know, you don't need to take PTO. If you're not in the hospital, like you can work from anywhere now, basically. I think the preservation issues that, that employees have to be worried about is when, they're, when you're sharing stuff with your family or anyone else in your household. We had a discussion regarding um, Alexa's, you know, like the Amazon devices. Because she's always listening, right? We learned that. Yes, another episode. (laughs) Y'all learned that. Alexa's always listening. So are you saying something that Alexa's picking up on? Or did you tell Alexa something by mistake that would be referenced, you know, to work, a work-related issue? So you have to think about those things and be careful in those surroundings. Very wise. And yes, Alexa is always listening. Uh, We actually had a few, one holiday that we just got bombarded with all of these Alexas and we, I had them in like the kitchen and one upstairs. So my husband came back behind me and he's like, nope, 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 nope. (laughs) I was like, I just want music in every room. (laughs) No, he's like, nope, nope, nope. Exactly. That's so funny. My daughters actually all unplugged their echoes in their Alexas too, because they were like, yeah, (laughs) I don't want to be, I think this next generation is starting to realize that there are there are ears everywhere and it's making them uneasy and we need to take heed of that. Yeah, yeah. However, I mean, I think the phone is just as bad. Everyone has this glued to their yeah, hand. Everyone, everyone's glued to the phone. So I think, honestly. <laughs> We're a lost cause, right? Right. <laughs> that is a great segue into e-discovery <laughs> and uh, how technology is empowering and enabling ex- exponentially uh, the world of e-discovery, the, the kinds of data that law firms such as yours can gather through different devices and the types of information and conclusions that can be extracted from that data. So let's talk about how technology is affecting e-discovery. Yeah. Can we start off with like a high-level definition of what is e-discovery? E-discovery is the electronic document side or data side of litigation. I think that it encompasses everything from our copy documents to your iPhone watch history. The easiest way to think about it is what is discoverable from, a, from an electronic perspective. And I would say the first and obvious one, everyone knows email, right? You think, oh yeah, I send an email, that's no, discoverable. And then you think about your computer hard drives, you know, and then people always say, um, I remember when I first got into this business in 2013, Someone said to, we were in a meeting, they're like, yeah, uh, your hard drive. And someone said, I erased it. 
And he and the gentleman that was presenting said, short of you taking it and burning it in an incinerator, it is discoverable. You know, so when people think it's a race, it's not a race. There are forensics companies that get paid a lot of money to tell me what's on that hard drive. You know, even though you think you erased it, you did not erase it. Um, you know, when we talk about cloud devices, we were just joking about Amazon Alexa, but, you know, you got the Google drives and think about um, your ring doorbells. I mean, like, cause you can have conversations with people on your, your ring doorbell. They're listening. Um, any kind of, um, you know, not just Amazon, um, Apple, the Apple products that you can put up through your house, all your telephones. We, we talked about mobile devices, um, you know, the wearable devices, the backup systems, but because of COVID, you know, now you have all these collaborative tools that you bring into the fold, Google drive. Think about Slack, Signal, Messenger, iMessenger, Messenger, BlackBerry Messenger. Yes, that still exists. BlackBerry Messenger, Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, anywhere that you would have a communication with someone, that's discoverable data. Now, the question is, how do you get it, right? Because everyone thinks like TikTok, Snapchat, everyone thinks, oh, it's an instant, it's gone. Give us a computer and we can tell you everything that is on that computer, what was erased from that computer, and when it was erased. And so I, I try to tell young people this all the time. You know, they're like, oh, I just put it on Snapchat. I just put it on Instagram Live. I said, you guys know there's a server somewhere where all that stuff is going. It may be deleted on your local device, but it is on their server. And the most interesting thing, the, the good news for them is, and we've learned that through some unfortunate uh, incidents in our country's history, that short of a court order, you can't get access to it, but you can get access to it with a court order. So while they think they're deleting it and it's not going to make a difference, it does. When I talk to young people, I say, please stop putting stuff on the internet that you don't want on the front page of the paper because who you're sending it to, you don't know who's transmitting, you don't know who they showed it to, you don't know who take a picture of it. And I also tell them that I'm glad they didn't have this stuff when I was your age because I'm not sure I would even have passed the, the fitness test to be a lawyer. I tell them the first place employers look is your social media presence for what you've done. And whether you think it's erased or not, I mean, like Google is the worst for it because you will delete something. We just had this come up in a case. The client said, oh, I deleted all my things off of Twitter, right? So they go through, they delete their Twitter. Google had already captured the images. So you, while it was deleted from Twitter, it was still available on Google. You put in the you put in the person's name and, and their Twitter... Their Twitter page popped up with that message. And they were like, but I deleted it. I said, no, you deleted it from Twitter. <laughs> you did not delete it from the World Wide Web, which is why all those things say World Wide Web means it's it's all over. I mean, so then it was discoverable, right? The other thing, pictures, for example. You know, everyone thinks oh, I deleted the picture off my phone. But every document, every picture, every text message has metadata with it, right? And so... That's very important in court because it'll tell you when it was taken, when it was last updated, who took it, you know, depending on what, how deep you want to go into it. That is why people like me have a job because we can go and collect the information and then you can defend the process. It's so important. And I, I want to emphasize and underscore this for anybody out there who is listening, who takes pictures, that your phone isn't a camera. It's a little computer 
right, that happens to have a camera functionality. And that little computer is sending all that stuff up to the cloud. And what I'm hearing you say, Angela, is that what's up in the cloud stays in the cloud. Yes, <laughs> it's right. everywhere. And I'm thinking of that song from the 1980s. I always feel like somebody's watching me, the one that has uh, Rockwell <laughs> yeah. and Michael Jackson. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, somebody's watching me. Yeah, yes. yes, I think we need that for our soundtrack for this episode. Well, it's like, it's in the server. It stays in the server. And that server is backed up upon backup upon backup. Like, it's like, it's never going away. So, yeah, I, I think of that as well. I, don't we laugh and everyone talks about Big Brother? But Big Brother is truly watching. I want to add for anyone that's listening, the courts expect you to have competency in e-discovery. I mean, they expect you to have competency in preservation, collection, and, you know, review. I mean, I think that's just an expectation that, look, if you're in a dispute and there's an issue, we expect that you know how to collect these documents and you're preserving them in the right way. Wow. That's makes, a lot of responsibility. It really <laughs> is. It really is. It just makes me think, you know, to your point about like someone's always listening and watching and your brother exists in some way, shape or form. How do we still have things that happen? For instance, they call it Varsity Blues documentary on Netflix where they kind of peel back the onion layers of the college scandal and how there are a lot of celebrities involved, but like paying off universities to get their kids into college and all that. Mm -hmm. When I think of that, I'm like, okay, there is big brother watching and our information is everywhere. If there was so much going on, phone calls, emails, uh, all these things going up into the cloud, how do people like that get away with something that of that magnitude for so long? They you know, pay, pay Big Brother to look the other way, right? That <laughs> is another conversation, I guess, for a different day. I'm going to say, Vanessa, you can't see my hand on the podcast, but I, what I'm telling you is that, you know, that was a that was a certain level of money um, until the right prosecutors caught a hold of what was going on. And, um, you know, we, that was, you know, what's, it's funny. That was for people. That was so funny. That was rich kid people getting their kids into college, right? But on a more, I guess, everyday scale, if you think about it, they had the FBI scandal with the same thing is that somebody was watching them. In theory, somebody was watching them and you didn't even know they were watching. My advice to everyone on the podcast is what's done in the dark is going to come out in the light one way or the other because mm-hmm. you never know who is paying attention, who's watching. Because, you know, in both of those instances, Somehow the government got to win what was going on and then they started their own investigation. You didn't even know you were being investigated until they show up at your front door like, hey, we're, we're taking you away in cuffs. And um, I think that, you know, for so long it got so easy. Yeah, we live in this world where we know everything is being watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we still do dumb crimes like that. With e-discovery, kind of circling back here, there's so much data everywhere. We've said it. How do you do this? How do you go through these electronic pieces of information when you're putting a case together in a timely fashion? Like how has that technology impacted the speed of that uh, litigation process? And sussing out the good stuff from the meaningless data. Exactly. 10 years ago, you were doing this by hand. You were just going in a room with paper documents and hoping your eyes didn't, didn't tie you, right? So now, you know, we have a technology partner, uh, Relativity, I'll give them a plug here, who's the best in the business. So they created a platform where you can ingest your documents and then we run searches. We're able to, you know, like deduplicate all emails. For example, Sue and Vanessa, if we were doing you two and then, you know, we were looking for a certain document. First, we would dedupe all the emails between the two of you. So we only have one copy. 
we would um, email thread, which is where we would only produce the latest chain in an email. You know, like we probably have five email chains with us, right? So we rather than get all five, we'd only get the latest version of it. And then we put in search terms. So where we may have started out with a, a set of 5,000 documents, by the time we get down to it, you know, we have date restrictors. You can say, you know, we only need documents for the last 30 days. It's never the last 30 days, like the last three years. But, um, and then we, we, we use date restrictors. I mean, we could go into some more. We, we, I mean, depending on the case and depending on what's going on, like we can do some name normalization. So you go by Sue, but so we would do Suzanne, we would do Sue and we could limit it out. So then we could pull everything up with any variation of your name. I'll give you the perfect example is this summer we took in uh, about 2 million documents for a case. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> and but, it needs to be um, done by hand. That's what kills me. I know. I can't imagine. And so then we took in 2 million. We did some, um, well, we call, it's called culling. And so we called the data down. Um, we did some early case assessment. And the review set ended up being like 43,000 documents. But without this tool, and when I say it automates it, I mean, I can perform searches pretty quickly. So it's made every litigator's life easier. And the, the other thing I'll say is it's not just litigation, because we, we deal with it across all of our business lines. Like we had a, a real estate case the other day where they needed a contract issue with all their warranties. They needed to know which contracts had warranties in them. So we were able to put the documents into the review space and then give them all the, the documents that had warranty clauses in it. So it's, it depends on what you're looking for, but it, it beats searching by hand and by uh, control F. Wow. Well, Angela, ugh, we could go on and on. This is all so fascinating, but I want to be sure that we take time to just get a little bit about your career journey in the legal profession. The short version is I started out practicing law in 2000 when I first graduated from law school. And um, sports has always been a love of mine. So I had an opportunity to go to work in sports for, oh, God, one, two, three, four, like eight years. So I was able to work in sports for eight years. And then I wanted to transition back to uh, what my parents paid for me to go to school. And um, the newest thing was uh, e-discovery. You know, I got into it not knowing that I would stay in it this long. It was just my entry back into the legal field. It was an easy way to get back in to, you know, to, to get your feet wet again. And I did that uh, back in 13 and now it's 2021. And now I'm, um, you know, the director of a, of a e-discovery vendor. Um, I was talking with one of the young men that worked with me yesterday, you know, and I told him, I said, you know, he I think he was worried about he wasn't sure this is what he wants to do. And I because he's young, it's his first job. And I told him, I said, I'm not asking you to, to, tell, to commit to me for life, but I'm just asking you to be committed while you're here. And I could say, I tell you, when I got into this, I had no idea. I never would have envisioned that eight years later, I'd be the director of a business development for e-discovery at a power law firm in the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. So you never know what opportunities are going to come your way. So I, I took a break and I came back into it. Certainly sounds fascinating. And like the technology has completely transformed the way you do your job. And so, so that's got to keep it really fresh and interesting. And yeah. And I'm always trying to stay up to date on like, what's the newest thing that's out? You know, like we have sentiment analysis now. That's something new where you can tell by the tone of an email, whether it's good or bad. You know, so I'm always trying to look on the cutting edge of how we can differentiate ourselves from the, from our competitors. Awesome. I'm ready for the lightning round, Sue. You ready? Yes. Oh, good. You all ready? Angela, the bigger question is, are 
you ready? That's right. I'm, I'm going to try. I cheated you got this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lightning round is what we like to do with our guests to get to know them on a more intimate level, but it's very fun. So we hope that you have fun doing it with us. First question is, what three pieces of advice would you give your younger self? One, don't let anyone tell you what you can't do. Okay. Two, unapologetically you, you know, just, just be, be mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got four though. Trust your instincts. Right. And then the last one is always bet on you. But I just think that you got, you have to bet on yourself every time. Like if I would have known that when I was young, there are a lot of things I would have done differently. I love that. Mm-hmm. And I think you're the first person who's, who said it to us in that way. And I agree 100%. Angela, how do you define success? I find success by what I accomplish. I think that I always felt until recently that I had something to prove. Like I always felt that until recently. But now that I look at, you know, like I have a lot to accomplish. And, and the goals that I set for myself is, is the success. It's not about money. It's not about, you know, how many friends I have or what kind of house I have. It's about these goals that I set for myself and how I accomplish those and still treat people well. Like, you know, it's like sometimes we we get off base. And I, and I my, my thing is you, you win with people. And so my success is by what I accomplish in, in treating people the right way. What resources do you wish existed for women in, in the tech space? Because you're in law, but you're in the tech space of law. So what resources do you wish existed for, for you coming up or ladies now coming up into this space? I think the biggest thing is a network. I think that um, it was a new space when I got into it. I know that, you know, there's women in need discovery, you know, but I mean, we don't have a chapter here. And so, and then COVID made it hard to connect, but if you can't tell, I like people. So um, I like, I I like to meet people. That's kind of how I get my energy, but I wish that we had more groups for women where we can just go and talk that aren't dominated by men. I mean, because it's an industry that's dominated by men. When you look at it, if you look at the industry, a lot of men are at the at the top and women do. Uh, I think I'm one of I'm probably the only black female business development uh, for e-discovery at, at a firm. I, I would think that I, I, I don't know that I would think that. But there are many people that look like me. Right. And there are not many women that look like me. And there, there are some women that probably run e-discovery practices at other firms. But I just think that I wish there was more ways for us to network and to grow. Um, I was on a panel recently with three other women, and we were both charged with um, one was from Canada, and one was on the West Coast, but we were both charged with developing the, the business side of it. And that was a very good group of women. And you know, admittedly, I haven't followed up, but it was it was very interesting. Like when we were preparing, it was it was really good to see. And I think um, not to get political or to bring things into this, but I think over the last year after what our country's been through um, since last May um, is that if one thing I've learned is that we, we need more um, inclusion. And um, I think that the one thing I wish we had is more resources. Even now, you know, I think groups are growing, but, you know, as I, I think that even myself, I think I need to do a better job of, of staying connected with people that I do meet. And even it's just, you know, check in once or twice a month or, you know, to say, look, Hey, what, what have you learned? What, what's, what's good practices? Cause I, I don't think anyone in here has created the wheel. I think that we just borrow from each other and reinvent it for ourselves. 
We hear that from so many of our guests, regardless of what um, vertical within the tech space that they are in is networking and mentorship uh-huh. are, are hugely important. Um, okay, a fun question. What celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie? Carrie Washington, because she's like the Olivia Pope. Like, she fixes things. I like that. Like, that would be me. <laughs> awesome. What's something about you that people will be surprised to know? That I'm a foodie? Like, I, I like trying different foods. You and I, you and I would get along really, really well, Angela. <laughs> you and Vanessa, <laughs> and you can tell me all about it. <laughs> yeah, I, you don't like. You're not a foodie, so I'm not a foodie. No, I'm oh, my God, tastes like, are very simple. Give me a bowl of fruit, and I'm happy. <laughs> oh, so we have to work on that. I know. Yeah. I have been told this my whole life. <laughs> food, food is an experience for me. Like, yeah, like, like just I love from it. Start to finish is an experience. All right, Angela, last question. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Fight like a girl. You know, like woman up. Just be you and come out swinging. Like no matter what it is, though, it could be a good swing or a bad swing, but just always be willing to, you know, like like stand up for what you mean. Mm-hmm. It goes back to what you're saying about, you know, be your own best advocate, right? And And just believe in your own voice. You have been an amazing guest. We have loved speaking with you. Um, it's just such a great reminder that <laughs> whatever you put out there is out there forever. So be, be wise, be discerning. A great advice for employers as they bring workers back. Great, great thoughts for um, employees too as they navigate this transition back to the workplace. So thank you so much for your time with us today. Thank you, Angela. And words of wisdom, bet on yourself. Yes. Yeah, do that. Bet on you. Y'all can use it. Let's leave with that. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.